Psalms chapter 4. I'd like to read just the first four verses of this psalm, and then we'll go to the Lord in a word of prayer. David says, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me, and hear my prayer. O ye sons of men, how long will ye turn my glory into shame? How long will ye love vanity, and seek after leasing, Selah? But know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still, Selah. Father, I pray that you'd, uh, that you'd speak to hearts. I pray, Lord, that tonight that you'd help me in the preaching of your word. I pray, Lord, tonight that you get down to serious business with us and that we get down to serious business with you. Lord, we've come tonight expecting to be fed and expecting to be helped, but, Lord, also expecting to be convicted and showed where we might have walked astray of you. So, Lord, we come tonight, and we belong to you, and we just pray that you do with us as would bring you glory and honor. Lord, we love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we read the fourth psalm, there's no question, even in the opening statements, that this is a psalm of distress. David, of course, he does magnify the Lord in some ways in Psalms 4. He seems to in every single psalm. Uh, we find the psalmist magnifying the Lord, whether it be David or, or Asaph or whoever it might have been. They always seem to be magnifying the Lord. I believe that was one of the grand purposes of the book of Psalms. But it seems as though, even though David does do that, that the context of this psalm is a time of distress. When he opens the psalm, he begins by asking the God of his righteousness to hear him. By saying that once before, when he had been in distress, that the Lord enlarged him. And he's pleading upon that premise and that precedent, <coughs> excuse me, for the Lord to hear his prayer and to help him once again. And you know, as I began to examine this psalm, I began to think about the context in which David wrote it. You know... It's been said before, we'll see, we may have some hacking, but it may not be preaching, amen? It may just be trying to survive. <clears throat> David lived in a day that most of us, if we could turn the clock back to, in some ways, at least as it relates to morality, we would do that. Uh, David lived at a time, and I'm not saying there wasn't wickedness in the world, it's evident from this psalm that there was wickedness in the world, but I think most of us would claim that we would trade the wickedness of today for the measure of wickedness there was then. And yet, when this godly man approaches unto the Lord, he is disturbed at the world that is around him. Look at verse number 2. He says, O ye sons of men, I think we can probably gather, and by the way, the Psalms were meant for public corporate worship, amen? They were meant to be used when the people of God met together in the temple of God. And I sort of believe when he says, ye sons of men, I think he has the world in mind, but I think he's also looking around at other believers. And he's saying, ye sons of men, how long will ye turn my glory into shame? How long will ye love vanity and seek after leasing, say law? You know, really, there are certain problems, and I might say this, that the chief problem of humanity has always remained the very same, and that's the sin problem. Humanity has a lot of problems, Amen. You look around at the world that is around us, and it is a world that is full of problems. But the basic and fundamental problem of humanity has always been the sin problem. Now, I'm glad to say that the same answer that it was back then is the same answer to that problem now. 
the same answer has remained fundamentally unchanged, and that answer is salvation through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, you know, David, when he speaks about the condition of the world, he mentions three things. I want to just set the stage by presenting these. Let me give you a little introduction. He looks around at the crookedness of the world, and he describes three ways in which the world lives that troubles him. Now, how many of you are troubled at the way the world is? Anybody? How many of you turn on the news and want to just immediately turn it right back off? Turn on TV of any kind and, I, and, and just immediately want to turn it right back off. Notice the three things that he describes around him. He says, number one, that the way of the world is a way of depravity. He says, how long will you turn my glory into shame? Now, there's probably some different ideas about what this might mean, but uh, being as how there's only one person in the pulpit at a time, amen, I'm going to tell you what I believe it means. I believe what he's saying is this, you know, man was made in the image of God, yes? We've been created in God's image, and while I would acknowledge that man is not very glorious, I believe that the intent of God in creation was to convey His glory, His magnificence and majesty with the crown of His creation, which was not the animals. I know that there's a group in society that would like us to believe it's the animals, amen? It was not the cosmos or the ecosystem of the world, and there's some in society would have us to believe that it's the ecosystem of the world, am I right? But the crown jewel of God's creation was humanity. He created man, last of all. He looked at the situation, he looked at what he had created, he said it's good. I believe that David looks around and he sees a world that has taken all that God has blessed them with and benefited them with, and is using it rather than for the glory of God, they are using it to the shame of God. You know, one of the great tragedies of our day, and this is true of Christians and lost folks alike, is very few of us really realize why we're here. Amen? Very few of us really realize and acknowledge and live in light of the reality of why we're here. You draw a breath tonight to bring glory to God. That's why you're allowed to live. You say, well, preacher, I don't know why I would die. Well, why do a lot of folks die? Listen, there's folks that have died even this day in this country that there was no rhyme or reason to it. People would call it a tragedy, a sad accident, a senseless tragedy. But the reality is we're here today. We draw a breath. You live. You move. You have your being so that you can bring glory to Almighty God. And yet the sad thing is we look around at a world that God created that seems to have all but forgotten about God Himself. You know, this was a problem even in David's day, just like it is now. We, we've really, let me tell you, we've really dressed up idolatry in society today. We have made idolatry as unintrusive to the human psyche as is, as is possible to do. People are idolaters without ever understanding that they're idolaters. I'm talking about church-going people now. I'm talking about Christian people that in the scheme of their priorities, Christ is somewhere way down here, and they've got something else sitting away up on the top of the pile. We live in a day of idolatry. We've been created. We've been saved by God's grace. If we've been saved at all, we've been saved by God's grace. Amen? And as such, God has breathed new life into you and me. Why did He do it? He did it so that we might live for Him, so that we might serve Him, so that we might praise Him, so that men might look at our good works and give glory to our Father that's in heaven. And yet the truth is, the vast majority of people that are walking this 
world are just walking from paycheck to paycheck, from event to event, from hour to hour, from minute to minute, without ever realizing there's a grander purpose for why they draw breath and why they have life. We live in a day of depravity. I think we can all agree with that. It was a way of depravity. Look at the next phrase. He says, how long will you love vanity? I believe we live in a day of distractions as well as depravity. There are things that go on today that if they had happened to society a hundred years ago, it would have troubled them deeply. But today we've got our nose stuck in a computer too long to ever look up, draw breath, and see that our world's falling apart around us. Now, let me say, I'm not against technology. Amen? That's all right. It's okay. It's been a little while since I've done this. It's been a little while since you've done it. It's all right if we're a little rusty. I'm not against technology. Listen, I, I, I'll tell my wife, we need, we need to get a microwave for our basement. And she looked at me funny. A microwave for the basement? I said, well, yeah, that way, you know, if my Pop-Tart gets cold, I don't have to walk upstairs to heat it up. I'm not against technology. I, 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 hey, man, rookie. I, listen, I, I'm not against our life having comfort and, and leisures. And, and I think, listen, if a man can invent a better mousetrap, he ought to do it. But I think we also live in a day where many of these things serve to distract us from the reality of life. Uh, we never just stop and listen to God anymore. We don't have time to stop. we got so much going on. We're running from here to there to everywhere. Every time we, I mean, we, there, there's not a moment of the day we don't have some kind of screen in front of our face. And there's just no time for God to speak in the middle of all of it. If there was a time for a still, small voice, he'd be drowned out by a loud beep or click. And that's the world that we live in today. We live in a world that is constantly distracted. There are things, listen, that have happened to our current president waiting or our president before the president before him, that if it had happened to somebody 60 years ago, it would have knocked him out of office. Amen? But now we're too anxious to look at the next set of pictures of our neighbor's cats or, you know, what, our, what somebody that went to church with us ate for supper. We're just, we live in a life of distractions. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not, I'm not against technology. I'm not against comfort. I'm not against entertainment in a, in a fundamental sense. But I'm merely saying we live in a world where we have anesthetized ourselves to the reality around us. And that's part of the way that people cope. It's part of the way people cope without losing their minds today. Well, there's a lot of people in this world, if they were to ever come to terms with the reality of how the world is around them, they couldn't cope with it. We haven't had to cope. I, I, I thought I was going to preach. I guess I'm just going to fuss at everybody. But <laughs> for some folks, that's one of the same. I don't know. So you might enjoy it. But listen, there, I, I'm very serious when I say this, that our generation today, and when I say our generation, I don't just mean mine, I mean the people walking the earth today, couldn't have coped with what life was for people as a reality a hundred years ago. Most people, if they ever had to chop their own wood or grow their own vegetables or tend to their own house, they'd just fall over, they'd die. And part of the way we cope with just this flurry of pent-up energy being wasted is by wasting it on distractions. Uh, something happens today, it'll be forgotten tomorrow. God moves on our hearts in this service. We probably won't even give thought to it by the time Sunday morning rolls around. We live in a day of distractions. I think he saw the distractions. Look at the next phrase. He says, and seek after leasing. What does leasing mean? That doesn't mean to go out and lease a car. But leasing in the Bible means deceit. He said, I look at the deceitful world around me. We live in a day where currency, truth is no longer the currency of the land. 
It's no longer the currency of the land. Reality is, is projected to be relative to people around us. When a child can go to school and put 2 plus 2 equals 5 on a paper, and their fragile intellect is so delicate they cannot be corrected. We, listen, we, li- we live in a time when the inmates have taken over the asylum. We live in a day where the truth does not carry any value now. All, all that matters now is what you can get away with and what you can do in this day that we live in. You know, in some ways, it's far different, but in some ways, it's almost like David's describing the day that we're living in today. You know, I think it begs this question. I think this is the very question David seeks to answer in this psalm. Preacher, what can I do? I'd say most people in this room probably agree with most of the things I've already said. Now, there might be some little fine points, but most of us acknowledge the world's a mess. Everything's going sideways and falling apart. Society's wicked. The church is apathetic. Uh, We're living in a day of apostasy. But now the question is, what do we do about it? You see, it's all good and well to sit and complain about the problem. But if we're going to fix what's going on in our life, we've got to quit paying attention to everything out there and start looking at what's going on in here. I came here tonight to preach to you some truth, and I hope you came to hear some truth. Because if you really want to change the direction your life is going, I believe there are four things that the psalmist points to that we can do to to walk a straight path in this crooked world. Now, the world can keep going that way, and I've got news for you. If I read my Bible right, uh, by the time the Lord comes back, and I believe He can come back at any moment, amen, this world's going to be in a mess. Isn't that true? Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse in the last days. Perilous times shall come. We understand all that. The world's going to go that way. But I want you to listen closely tonight. That doesn't mean your home and my home have to go that way. We may not be able to stop the progress, the march of insanity that the world is on. That doesn't mean you and I have to get on that march with them and be in lockstep. He points to four things, and I want to give them to you tonight before we close. Look at verse number 3. He says, but, now I like that, that that's, a, that's a transitive statement, amen. He's saying, this is the way it is, but know that the godly hath set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. Let me say, number one, that we've got to make up our mind that we're willing to be peculiar in the world that we live in. Notice again the phrase, he says, but know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. Can I ask you a question? Are you set apart from the system of the world, or are you marching right along with it? If someone was to examine your life and behavior, would they find it to be in stark contrast with that of the world that is around you? Here's part of the problem. The Bible says the Lord has called you and me to be a peculiar people, zealous unto good works. That's why He saved us. He saved us to be different. We've lost this whole thing about being the salt of the earth. Uh, we're just blending right in. Amen. Uh, let me tell you that, you know, I'm not a deer hunter. I'm not a hunter in any way. Amen. I mean, I can hunt out if like a package of meat is on special at a grocery store. We go to Walmart. We look for them yellow stickers. Somebody say amen to that. Uh, we don't want the meat to be yellow now. That's too cheap, but we want the sticker to be yellow. I'm not a hunter, but I, I do know that when a person goes out hunting, particularly deer hunting, deer, deer are very scent-oriented. And uh, there's a whole big process you have to go through. It's really just cheaper to go buy deer or make friends with somebody that hunts deer. That's been the course I've taken. But uh, you have to go. They have special shampoo you have to use uh, before you go out the next day to, to wash your hair, to wash your body so you don't have any scent. 
They have special detergent you're supposed to wash your clothes in before you go out. I don't know. I guess deer hunters just ride to the tree stand naked. I've never been able to figure that out. But they also, a lot of deer hunters will take like a Ziploc bag and they'll, wherever they're planning on hunting, they'll gather up some of the dirt and place it in that Ziploc bag and then they will take their clothes that they're going to wear, that they're going to put on when they get to the stand, they'll put them in that Ziploc bag and leave them in there so that their clothes will soak in the scent so that then when they go out and get in the woods, the deer can't smell that there's any difference between them and their surroundings. Let me tell you what the church has become today. The church has become the Ziploc bag. We take all the filth of the world and bring it into the house of God and come in and feel like we're having church and pull on us the same scent of wickedness and compromise and ungodliness that the world has on it. That way when we get out to the stand, nobody can smell there's a difference between us. Are you really different from the world that's going on around you? He mentions two things, by the way. I want you to notice them. He speaks first off of separation. He says, the Lord hath set apart him that is godly. Separation is to come out from among them. Separation is to say, I'll have no part with their wicked deeds. Separation is to look at the world and to say, if I'm to be different from the world, I must separate from what the world is and does. That doesn't mean that we're to be contrarian in our behavior. But it does mean we're to be different. It means that just because the world is doing it, it does not validate what's going on. If you're going to live right in this day, you better come to terms with the fact you're going to be living different than the world that's around you. We spend a lot of time, we want our kids to be accepted, right? We don't want them to be ostracized. We don't want them to be treated as though they're different. I believe that's a very unchristian-like attitude. Because the reality is this, if our kids are living for God, they will be different. And they will be viewed as different. In the workplace, we want to be blending in. Now again, I'm not saying we're to be contrarian. I'm not saying we need to just be ugly and obnoxious. There's a lot of folks that that go out and and they treat everybody bad, and then when everybody reacts and treats them bad, they claim persecution. That's not what I'm talking about now. But I am saying this. All they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And we better grow comfortable if we want to be pleasing unto God with the notion and truth that we are going to be fundamentally different than the world that surrounds us. He speaks of separation. He says, to come out from among them. He says, the Lord hath set apart him that is godly. Then notice the next two words. These are important. He speaks of consecration. He says, the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. You know what the difference is between someone that has a, uh, a what's the word I'm looking for? The world would call them a goody two-shoes is what they call them. Someone that has sort of a morality complex and a person that's really what God wants them to be. Listen, it don't do you any good to separate from that if you don't separate to the Lord. That's how Pharisees are made. Pharisees were the most separated people walking the earth. But here's the problem. They had separated from the world system around them, but they hadn't separated to the God that breathed life into the truth of the Word of God. And you know what they wound up being? Christ described it very aptly when He said, you're like whited sepulchers. The outside you're beautiful and garnished, and within are dead men's bones. We only have life from walking with God. This is where our children, I think, struggle. And the reason is because to children, they live in a, in a structure of rules. Uh, society, listen, for the first, I don't know, at least 
15 years, probably 18 years of your life. Life is all rules. Somebody tells you when to get up. They tell you when to go to bed. They tell you when to eat. They tell you when you can talk, when you can't talk. Uh, don't let kids know this, but that don't ever change. Amen? At least not if you get married. And uh, that never changes. That Life is of structure and of rules. But I think because of that, sometimes young people struggle in realizing the substance behind the standard. There's a reason for all this. It's not enough. Listen, it's all good and well that Daniel withheld himself from the king's meat, but he wouldn't have done that if he hadn't first purposed in his own heart. There's got to be something substantive to our standards, or else they're not really standards at all. They're hypocrisy. Uh, that's what Paul talks about when he says having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. You know what the form is? That's the outer shape, right? Uh, that's what a form is. He's saying you've got the outside. If you were to look at it two-dimensionally, it'd look fine. But if you, if you look three-dimensionally, if you look on a, on a greater and closer inspection, you find out that while the shape is there, while the outline is there, while the form is there, there's nothing within of substance and of reality. Separation means nothing without consecration. And consecration without separation does not exist. You know how the Bible uh, describes says, Come out from among them and touch not the unclean thing. And then it says, And I will be a father unto you. In other words, listen, there's a relationship that, that births the standard. And the standard encourages and facilitates the relationship. And these two things work cohesively with each other. The fact is, if we're going to live right, we're going to have to grow comfortable with the fact that we may be out of step with the world, but we're in step with God. We need to be peculiar. Look at the end of verse number 3. He says this, The Lord will hear when I call unto Him. We need to be peculiar, but we also need to be in prayer if we're going to live right in the world that we're in today. If you don't pray, start now. That's some of the greatest advice I could possibly give you. People come to me for advice more often than the average person, uh, probably not as often as folks should. I'm just being honest. Now, and I'm not saying I have the answers to everyone, but I'm just saying I see a lot of people sometimes in life that uh, they could use some counsel if they'd receive it. But if I was to boil down and, and to give one piece of counsel to a believer, it would be learn to pray and pray often. You don't have to pray constantly. You just have to always be in prayer. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, I mean this. You don't have to spend all your time on your face praying to God, but don't ever close the window. You remember what it said in Daniel chapter 6? Daniel prayed having his windows open. You know why he was so quick to pray? Because the window was already open. didn't say Daniel had to go and open his window before he could pray because the window was already open. Now, I don't believe we have to pray towards Jerusalem. Amen? But I do believe there is a truth there, which is this, that if we let our life get in such disrepair that we have to go to God and spend about an hour and a half confessing and forsaken, most of the time we'll figure it's not worth the trouble and we'll just go about our business and never pray. I'm talking about real prayer now. I'm not, I'm not talking about just prayer on our end, but I'm talking about prayer on our end and prayer on His end. I'm talking about getting a hold of God. We need to pray. And we need to understand that if we are to live the way God would have us to do, it doesn't just recommend prayer, it requires prayer. Notice there's two things I think that are important. Notice that there's a word of promise here. It says the Lord will hear. Will hear. Prayer is not about feeling. Although sometimes when I've been in the prayer closet, I've felt the presence of God. 
But prayer at its very essence is not a matter of feeling. Prayer is a matter of faith. Now, while feeling and faith are not mutually exclusive of each other, they are also not synonymous. It's not bad to feel something. Amen? Right? I sat down. My wife cooked me lunch earlier. After I ate, I felt full. I'm happy I felt full. If I get hungry again, my first goal is going to be to feel full again. Amen? We are creatures of emotion. God has emotion. Now, we can't understand all the mysteries of the way God's emotions work. But I basically believe they, our emotions reflect in some semblance God's emotion. I believe God gets happy. In fact, the Bible talks about it. I believe God gets angry. Amen? In fact, the Bible talks about it. I believe God gets jealous. Now, I don't think His jealousy is like our jealousy. But in a sense, God gets jealous. The Bible talks about the Lord laughing at things. And certainly the Bible describes the Lord weeping. Over things. Emotions are not a bad thing, but don't confuse feelings and faith as being synonymous. You say, Preacher, what do you mean? Well, I mean this that there's some folks that have feeling without faith. By the same token, there's going to be times that you have faith without feeling. And faith is the preeminent thing. Feelings aren't bad, but you can have feeling and not get anything done. But the Bible says that uh, if we are to please God, that without faith it is impossible to please Him. We've got to have faith. So prayer is basically a matter of faith, us speaking to God, trusting He'll listen. What does God have to say about that? Well, He promises that He will hear. Now, I understand that context demands that there are some conditions to that. I don't believe he's saying that the Lord's obligated to hear any prayer of a lost man. I do believe the Lord is obligated to hear the salvation prayer of a lost man when he's under conviction. Amen? And you say, well, you mean God would? Well, he wouldn't be under conviction if God wasn't dealing with him. Amen? But I don't believe God is required. If a lost man is sitting in the hospital, a loved one's dying, and he prays, God, please save that loved Loved one, don't let them die. I don't believe God's under any obligation to hear that. But the Lord has placed Himself under obligation to hear believers that are praying unto Him, whose hearts and lives are where they need to be. We have a promise. God doesn't say, when you call, I'll make you feel something. But He does say, when you call, I'll hear. We hear a word of promise, but notice there's also a word of presumption. It says, the Lord will hear... When I call unto Him. When I call unto Him. There are times God has answered things I should have prayed for but didn't. But there's never been a time when my heart's been in the right condition that I've prayed and God hasn't heard me. God is not under any obligation to hear a prayer you don't pray. But God has placed Himself under obligation to hear a prayer when you do pray. Said, preacher, what does all this boil down to? Boils down to this. Pray. Pray. You need prayer. Prayer is not just a good thing. Prayer, as far as the life of the believer is concerned, as far as our behavior and activity, is one of the chief things. It's not a dispensable thing. It's a necessity in our life. And if your life is not where it needs to be, start with prayer before you start with anything else. I firmly believe that if a man can conquer his prayer life, then he's going to have a close relationship with God and he's set to do great things for God. If he'll surrender his life, if he learns to pray. We're going to have to be in prayer if we're going to walk the way the Lord would have us to. Look at verse number 4. He says, Stand in awe and sin not. We need to be 
peculiar and be in prayer. But if we're going to live right in this world that we live in, we're going to have to learn to be pure in our behavior. And it's interesting that these two things would find themselves beside each other. He says, stand in awe and sin not. I believe a lot of us have lost the awe because of our wickedness. And a lot of us are living in wickedness because we've lost the awe. And I jotted it down this way. Don't lose the wonder. Don't give in to apathy. You know, there's nothing more infuriating than apathy. And if you don't believe that, you've never spent time around teenagers. Amen. I'm not against teenagers. I used to be a teenager. I hope one day that my child grows into a teenager. Amen. I'm not against teenagers. But let me say this. For all the apathy a young person might have, it pales in comparison to the apathy I see in adults very often. Do you know why? Because young people do not have the proper understanding and association of life yet. Now, there are some things they see very, very clearly. But there are some things just by virtue of living life and gaining experience uh, that you begin your perception and perspective is adjusted. I mean, uh, there are there are heartaches that a young person knows that they might not understand the heartaches that an adult might go through. And so I believe that the crime of apathy is doubly wicked in an adult as it is in a young person. I'm reminded, and if the Lord will let me, I want to preach on it Sunday night if, if I can. But, you know, in in Deuteronomy chapter 11, we actually preached on this last Wednesday night, but in Deuteronomy chapter 11, Moses spends some time, and he says, I'm not talking to your kids, to your children that have not known and have not seen. But he says, I'm speaking to those of you that have known and that have seen. He lists about seven things that God had done in their life, how he had had chastised them in Egypt and how he had had, uh, brought them out with his high hand and delivered them by the uh, atonement blood of the Lamb and how he had defeated the uh, armies of Pharaoh at the Red Sea and how he had led them through the wilderness all those years and how he had struck down uh, Dothan and Abiram uh, for standing against the man of God. And he lists all these things. But the thrust of it is this. He's saying, look, there's a whole group of you that's never seen and that's not who I'm talking to. I'm talking to those of you that have have seen, because by virtue of your seeing, you have garnered a greater responsibility. Let me tell you something. Young people might be apathetic sometimes. They might be rebellious sometimes. But they have a lot more excuse for it than you or I do. (coughs) How dare us, who have seen God work so mightily, get to the place where we meet God's presence with a meh and a shrugged shoulder. Don't wonder if your life goes off the rails when God doesn't even impress you anymore. We need to not lose the wonder. But let me say number two, don't live in wickedness and don't give in to iniquity. Now, that may seem elementary to say, but there's two things I would say to maybe a charge of that being elementary. One would be, evidently, we've not got a good grasp of it because look at the world around us. But number two, I would say this, that inasmuch as it correlates to the statement prior to it, There is a profound truth which we need to understand, which is this, that the path to a life of wickedness begins with us not being interested in God's presence anymore. You may think, well, I'm just in a funk. We all know what that means, right? I'm in a rut. Maybe that's a little better. My preacher used to say a rut is just a grave with both ends kicked out. But we need to be careful because we all get low sometimes. Am I right? Amen? We all get discouraged sometimes, am I right? Amen? Listen, if you don't get discouraged, that's fine. Me and Toby will preach at each other tonight, all right? I get discouraged sometimes. 
I get down sometimes. I get frustrated sometimes. And that's human. You know what else is human? Depravity, iniquity, sin. And those two realities often lead to one another and go hand in hand. I'm not fussing at you for having low points. We all have low points. But don't believe for a moment there's not a danger in growing bored with God. Because when God, when we're bored with God, we're going to seek excitement other places. So we need to, you know how that begins? First off, we need to worship. Right? Worship is a verb. It's something we do. Right? The Bible says they worship the Lord. It says Abraham worshiped the Lord. That's a verb. It's something we do. So if you don't know whether you're worshiping or not, you're probably not. It's all right. We're all in this together. If you don't know what worshiping the Lord is, you probably aren't doing it. It's a verb. It's active. Don't ever get to the place where you don't worship God. I understand worship's a matter of the heart. But I also understand there are some universal truths about worship that are true regardless of a man's culture or background or comfort level or experience. And I don't believe a person passively worships God. I believe they actively do it. It's something that we pursue. We need to worship God. And then understand this, that worship not only deals with adoration, but it deals with self-examination. We'll talk about this in a moment. But don't ever get to the place where you shut God out and don't let Him work in your heart. Let me tell you, one of the things that troubles me, and I, and I, I try to be cautious in how I say this, because I don't want to do anything to pressure anyone to do anything other than what the Lord wants them to do. But I've been pastor for seven years, right? Close to it or something like that. I don't know. I think I'm in my seventh year. It ought to be that in seven years, God's broken every one of us at some point or another. Every every message, the altar's not going to be full. I learned that very quickly. Every message, God may not deal with you. But if it's been years since God's gripped your heart, something's wrong profoundly. I'm not standing here to be a judge. I'm just merely saying, if, if, it's been, if it's been ten years since God's broken you over you, and ten years since God has spoken to your heart, something is deeply wrong. And don't be surprised if your life winds up off the tracks. I'd say we need to be pure. Let me give you one more and I'm done tonight. Look at the end of verse 4. The psalmist says, Commune with your own heart upon your bed. And be still, say law. We need to learn to be patient if we're going to live for the Lord in this world. Patience is a strange commodity in the day that we live in. Patience is directly relative to the desire we have for an object. Have you ever found that? There are some things that we will wait forever for. And there are some things we're very impatient about. And usually the deciding factor in that is how much we desire it. Let me give you an example. You ever been to a restaurant? It's funny how that thing works. If, if, if I was sitting at home and I came into my wife and, and I said, Honey, uh, there's a box of crackers sitting over there on the table. Would you hand those to me? And she said, It'll be a 30 to 45 minute wait. I'd be upset. I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. But for whatever reason, Cracker Barrel can do that to us, right? I'll tell you this. If I walk into the Crystals and they tell me it's a 30 or 45 minute wait, 
I'm going to throw my shoe at somebody. But now if I go down to the Brazilian steakhouse, if they said it was a, a 30 or 45 hour wait, if I ain't got no place to be, I'll sit there and wait. I'm a lot more interested, Brother Charlie. Yeah. Than I am in the crystals. It's funny. You know, there's certain things we'll wait and wait and wait and wait for. And it's usually directly related to the desire that we have for them. The psalmist, I think, is saying this. That if we're going to live for God in this world, it's not always going to be easy. And there's times when inasmuch as we've prayed and asked God to intervene, the answer may not come immediately. What do we do in this world? Well, he points to two things. Number one, he points to personal examination. And he says this. Now, remember, I mean, just two verses earlier, he's talking to the sons of men. He's talking to all those wicked folks that aren't him, right? He's saying, ye sons of men, I, listen, how long will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love vanity and seek after leasing? But what's David supposed to do about it? Well, David, all he can do is what he can do. Now, I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say. I'm not trying to lull you into a, a do-nothing attitude. But we have to understand there are some things that are beyond our control and scope of influence in this world. And there are other things that are squarely within that scope and realm of influence. You know what we have a bad habit of doing? We have a bad habit of getting outraged about things we can't do a thing about and being indifferent to the things we can do something about. Right? Oh, listen, I mean, the, the, the president goes out and, and does something to slide Israel. We're ready to go to war, right? But we ain't passed out a gospel track in four and a half years. Listen, I, you say, preacher, should we not do it? No, I, I think the best advice is what the, the, uh, the Lord told the Pharisees when he said that, you know, you, you tithe and mince and cumin and you neglect the way your matter's law. He said you ought to do the one and not neglect the other. Here's what we need to do. We need to do what we can do. And it begins with a personal examination. Commune with your own heart upon your bed. Look at your own heart and life. Look at what you can change about you. It's all good and well to rail against the world. I've spent a little bit of time tonight talking about how wicked this world is. But at the end of the day, I can't do a, a thing, at least not directly, to change what's going on in Hollywood, California. I understand I have a vote like everybody else. I can write letters to my congressman. I, I understand all that. And I'm not saying there's not merit in it. But I'm saying I have far more influence over my own heart than I do over the world that's around me. You know what you and I have to do? We have to make sure our life is right. We're, listen, we're not going to get to go up and stand beside these congressmen at the judgment seat of Christ and say, I told them. And let me tell you something, when you're standing at the judgment seat of Christ, there ain't going to be nobody come up and stand beside you and say, well, you know, they tried, they tried. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And one day, if you know the Lord, you're going to stand there and give an account for the things done in the body, whether they be good or whether they be evil. And so you better spend some time communing with your own heart upon your bed. I think it requires personal examination. Then you know what I think it requires after that? This is tough now. It requires patient endurance. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. That's tough. I have learned how difficult of a time the Lord must have with me as I've been raising a three-year-old. They have all this energy. And that's wonderful because energy gets exponentially less and less and less as you get older. Somebody say amen to that. 
if there's going to be a time when he's got so much energy he just can't contain it, now's the time. It's only going to get less and less. But it's funny because you'll tell a little child, you'll say, just sit still. And, I mean, they'll, they'll sit there and they just, they've got to move something. Their hand, their foot, their toe, they've got to move something. They've got to do something to buck that authority. Boy, I bet that's how God feels about you and me. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And we want to march on forward. I don't know. I might be wrong about this. But I believe that probably if they had walked on in faith at the Red Sea, they would have walked on water. But because they lacked faith, they had to stand still while God worked and did something. You know, in this world that we live in, there's a lot you can't change. Here's what you have to learn to do. You have to learn to change what you can change and trust God with what you can't. And that's hard to do sometimes. Especially when your heart's invested. you got, you got children and, and they're carrying your heart all over the world. you got, you got grandchildren that are carrying your heart all over the world. And you're nervous and you're just a ball of nerves. You, you turn on the TV and everything's going sideways and you worry about your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And one of the hardest things to do, but we have to do it if we're going to live for the Lord and not just be a basket of nerves all the time, is learn to do what we can do and trust God with the rest of it. I don't know if you realize this, but nobody got together and elected you as the person to rule the world and make sure everything goes off that hitch. But there is one that sits on the circle of the earth that has the power and capacity to work in people's lives. And he can work in your life and mine. I think there's four things. We've got to learn to be peculiar. We've got to learn to be in prayer. We've got to learn to be pure. We've got to learn to be patient if we're going to live for the Lord in this world.